and thinking of yourself. Are, are you the blessed man who never walks in the way of sinners, but only ever delights in God's law? Are you the one who is like a well-watered tree in God's garden, only ever bearing good fruit? You can see how each of us falls short of, of what's here described in Psalm 1, that, that man who is blessed is, is not you or me, at least not naturally. But this psalm ultimately is about Christ, the blessed man in whom we seek our life. An opportunity last week to preach this uh, psalm as we had a, a profession of faith at, at Emmanuel, and uh, as you have a young, young man or young woman professing their faith in Christ, this is, this is ultimately what we are professing, that we seek our life not in ourself, but in Christ, that we despise and humble ourselves because of our sin, because of our inability to meet the standard of, of a psalm like Psalm 1, but we seek our life in Christ who has. We seek our life in Him and His obedience. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He is preeminently the one who fulfills what is described for us in this psalm. And only when we properly understand that, only when we properly understand that you or I cannot in and of ourselves fulfill the the demands of Psalm 1, only when we understand that Christ is the only one who has, only then can we even begin to live in a way that looks anything like what is here described. And so before we look this afternoon at uh, the word of Christ in which we delight and following Christ by forsaking the world, those are our second and third points, before we get to that, I want to look first at Christ the blessed man in whom we seek our life. That's our first point, and there's again four reasons why I say that Christ is the blessed man of this psalm. First, as you look at the description of this blessed man, what it tells us about him very simply is that he does not sin. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, meaning he is not influenced by the so-called wisdom of the world. He doesn't take his cues from the godless society around him. Nor does he then stop and, and stand in the way of sinners. You see that progression from first listening to then stopping and becoming one of them. That word for way or or path is suggesting a way of life that he will not adopt as his own. And so he also then doesn't sit with the scoffers, the mockers who call evil good and good evil and ridicule God's people. But he is the exact opposite. It tells us that his delight is in the word of God, on which he meditates both day and night, doing that which Deuteronomy 6 calls us to. When we lie down and when we rise up, meditating on this word. And it says then that because he does this, he bears good fruit, unlike the wicked of verse 1. But his way is the way of blessing, and it is so constantly. And we see this because each of the verbs that are used throughout this this, uh, first verse or in the perfect mood, emphasizing that he is never involved. 
that, that he continually resists any, any of these behaviors that are tainted with evil. He never listens to the counsel of the wicked. He never stands in the way of sinners. He never sits in the seat of scoffers and of mockers. Can you say that of yourself? If we're honest, not a one of us gathered here today are qualified to receive the blessing of verse 1, for we have listened to the counsel of the wicked. We have allowed the world around us to shape us into its mold. We have stood in the path of sinners, been influenced by those who help us not to love God more but less. And we have even sat with, with the scoffers, with our coarse joking and our making light of sin and our, our poking fun at those who differ from us and our taking on the inflammatory rhetoric of the world around us. We have not perfectly resisted the way of sinners. We have not done so in our thoughts. We have not done so with our speech. Uh, young people, uh, you have not done so in your interactions with your peers. Young people and adults, we've not done so in our online conduct. But as Augustine said many years ago, this psalm is to be understood of our Lord Jesus. Who, as you, you move to the New Testament and you read through the Gospels, not only perfectly resists the way of sin, but he does so so consistently and to such a degree that he actually becomes that object of scorn because he is so separate from the world around him. And yet even in the midst of that hostility, he's still able to find joy and delight in life because he would so frequently withdraw early in the morning, late at night, as we read in the Gospels, to commune with his Father and to meditate on his word. And he did this so much that he, he was prepared when he was tempted in the wilderness, to resist the temptations of the devil by, by quoting Scripture. He had meditated on God's Word so much and so well that at just 12 years old, he, he was able in the temple to amaze the teachers of the law with his, his knowledge of God's Word on which he had meditated both day and night. Only Christ meets the standard of verses 1 and 2. And only Christ, therefore, is like that tree that is planted in God's garden who brings forth fruit in season, his leaf never withering, and whatever he does prospering. This psalm calls us, first of all, to see our sin and to look to the one who is righteous for us. That's part of why throughout this psalm, the man who is referred to is not referred to in the plural. It's not how blessed are they who do these things, but he. So this is the second reason why I say this psalm is about Christ. It, it, it's about a singular individual. The very grammar of, of the passage is leading it this way. And this, this singular individual about which it speaks is a man. The word is masculine. In fact, it's not using the, the, the more general Hebrew word for, for man as in humanity in general, but it's using the word that refers specifically to a male, to a man who will come and is specifically spoken of here in language that is emphatically singular and emphatically masculine, referring to one who will come and meet this standard. And the reason I say to one who will come is because of what the psalms are doing. 
The, the book of the Psalms is, is the royal hymn book of God's people, and it has as its main theme the Davidic covenant, which will be spoken of in Psalm 2, uh, and it, it comes up at many of the, the major hinges or seams throughout the book. As you come to the book of, of the end of book 2, we have a great psalm like Psalm 72 about the Davidic kingdom of the Christ to come. As you come to the end of book 3, uh, Psalm 89 is, is all about the, the big uh, question mark surrounding God's promises that he's made to David. Wondering whether he's forgotten his covenant promise? The theme of God's promise of a David to come, remember that's ultimately what God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that from David's line would come an eternal king whose kingdom would have no end. That promise of a David to come, that theme is central throughout the book of the Psalms. That's why, actually, it's interesting when you read uh, books one and books two, you find that almost all of the superscriptions are Davidic, especially in Psalm one. So it's sort of walking us through the, 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 the life of David, and then by the end of Psalm 72, it tells us the prayers of David are ended. And so books one and two are, are walking us through the life of David, which, which in many ways is also uh, projecting his own experience into the future towards the one who would come from his line. This morning we sang from, sang from Psalm uh, 22, where that is, is supremely the case. Where David's own experiences of suffering are prophetic of the one who would come after him. In Psalms, books 1 and 2, the first 72 or so Psalms, you have this experience where it's walking us through the rise of David and the rise of his kingdom. But then, finally, you come to books 3 and 4. And right after it tells us the prayers of David are ended, all of a sudden, we're in exile. Books 73 and following, it's, it's disorientation and, and confusion. Psalm 74, the, the temple being destroyed. Psalm 88, the great low point of the Psalter. And so in, in books 1 and 2 of the Psalms, you, you have this theme of, of, of God's covenant with David, the establishment of the kingdom. But then in books 3 and 4, there's this great question mark surrounding the Davidic covenant. And then that Davidic covenant, which is the, the subject of those earlier books, and the great concern and question mark of books 3 and 4, becomes the great hope of book 5, where you have this return of the Davidic voice that has all but disappeared, and especially in book 3. And then towards the book, end, end of book 4, you have this return of the Davidic voice, and then this triad of Davidic psalms in 108, 109, and 110, and all of a sudden, throughout book 5, you have all of these royal prophetic psalms, like Psalm 110, and Psalm 118, and Psalm 145, where, where as we come towards the end of the Psalter, we're seeing a, a confidence that God is going to fulfill the promises that he has made concerning a son of David. And because of this great confidence that he will, the, the Psalter ends in Psalms 146 to 150 with this great crescendo of praise, this great doxology of praise to the God who has kept his promises regarding the kingdom of his beloved son. So in many ways, the theme and subject of the book of Psalms is God's kingdom and God's promise to David. Which is why Psalms 1 and 2, as a pair, introduce the whole book to us with a reference in Psalm 2-2 to God's anointed and a reference in Psalm 2-7 to the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. 
And as these two psalms together then introduce the whole Psalter to us, the the man of Psalm 2, God's anointed to whom the nations will be given and the kings of the earth are called to pay homage to, that man is the same man of Psalm 1. It's interesting, I mentioned the the superscriptions, the the Davidic superscriptions you have all throughout book one. There's no superscription either for Psalm one or Psalm two. That's that's hinting towards the introductory nature of these two psalms. And you have this sort of of inclusio where the Psalm uh, Psalm one begins with this idea of of blessed is the man. And Psalm 2.12 ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. So these two psalms are to be read together. They're introducing us to the blessed man against whom the nations will rage, but who will nevertheless be raised up despite his suffering, the same suffering that the Psalms are going to unfold for us, will nevertheless be raised up, and all who put their trust in him will be blessed. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are introducing us to the Davidic king to come. It's the third reason why I say this psalm is about Christ, because only he meets this standard, because even the grammar is causing us to look for a singular male who will do this, and because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together introduce us to the whole book, which looks for God's provision of a royal king to come who is spoken of in Psalm 2. And the last reason why I say this psalm is about Christ is because he himself tells us in Luke 24 that the psalms speak of him, that they are prophetic of both his sufferings and his glory. And if that is true of the whole, if it's, if it's true, and Christ says it is, that the psalms speak of him, then would it not be odd if the introductory psalm were the exception? Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Neither you nor I are able to meet the standard that it calls us to. Yet the good news of the gospel is that even though we cannot meet this standard and therefore are not able to obtain the blessings that are promised in verse 3 and in verse 6, Psalm 2.12 says that there is a way to attain them. That it's by putting our trust in him. Notice there in Psalm 2.12, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the, the righteous of Psalm 1.5 and Psalm 1.6, who all of a sudden are being spoken of in the plural as a whole congregation who have put their trust in him who meets this standard for us, keeping every one of God's laws so that his righteousness might be imputed to us by faith alone. And again, that's what we confess in our public profession of faith, that our righteousness is not in ourselves, but in Christ, who alone meets this standard. And even though he alone meets it, even though he alone fulfills what is spoken of in Psalm 1, the gospel of justification by faith alone that the Reformation recovered allows us nevertheless to be counted as righteous in him. Not a righteousness of our own, 
but an alien righteousness that is a, a gift, his righteousness given to us on permanent loan so that his righteousness, his keeping of, of this, this psalm, his keeping of all the commands of God for us becomes our standing before God. Because he never stood in the path of sinners, you and I are able to stand before God. That's the gospel of justification by faith alone, not of your own works, but his. Given to you by grace through faith. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This psalm is calling us to seek our lives not in ourselves, but in Christ, the blessed man of whom this psalm speaks. It's not calling us to muster up our own righteousness. As we confess in the Belgic Confession, if our standing before God were based on our own ability to do this, then our poor consciences would be constantly tormented, lacking assurance that they did not rest on the active obedience of Christ, whose righteousness is given to us. And so if that is not your hope this afternoon, but you are resting on your own ability to be a Psalm 1 man or a Psalm 1 woman, Psalm 1, boy or girl, I'm here to tell you that you cannot do it. But Christ has done it for you. In fact, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole story of the Bible. That's the whole story of the Psalter, which Luther rightly called a mini-Bible, that Christ has done it for you and calls you to cling to him by faith and confess, Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man. Psalm 1-1 is a confession of faith, not an assertion of accomplishment. So the whole Reformation was about understanding that our first response to the gospel, our, our first response to Psalm 1 is to bless the Lord Jesus by faith and join in this confession saying, blessed is the man. Psalm 2.12, I want to find refuge in him. Because everyone who doesn't, everyone who scoffs at him or mocks him like those in Psalm 2, everyone who is indifferent toward him, everyone who thinks that his righteousness is not sufficient, but you must add to it yourself, is in that category of verse 4 and verse 5, who will not stand on the day of judgment. Because the only way you can is in him. And so this psalm is inviting you to do that by faith. In fact, it's commanding you to do that by faith, as it will tell us in Psalm 2.12, to kiss the Son and put our trust in Him. And so that's the primary application of Psalm 1. Not to self-righteously think that you have done this, nor to wallow in the fact that you cannot but to look to the one who has, and by faith, to be joined to that congregation of the righteous who are found in him. He alone is the righteous one, but those in verses 5 and 6 are covered in his righteousness, joined to him by faith, and filled with his spirit, so that more and more we might become like him. And so what we're trying to do is, is get the order right by not moralizing this psalm, 
but also not robbing it of application to us, but seeing how Christ is the singular fulfillment of it, and yet joined to him, we become like him. With the spirit of Christ, the blessed man in us, the the spirit of the Psalm 1 man in us, what is true of him should increasingly be true of us. So that as we are joined to him by faith and united to him by his spirit, we too would delight in his word and we too would seek to follow him on the way of the righteous. Let's look at me at those two things now. First, the word of Christ in which we delight. As we are joined to him by faith, what is true of him in verse 2 should be increasingly true of us that we delight in God's word meditating on it and finding it a joy. You see, there is this this theme of happiness that runs throughout this psalm, or even that word for blessed in verse 1. You could translate happy. In fact, some other other translations do. This man is is content. He's happy. He's, He's blessed, and he delights in God's word. John Calvin says one of the things this teaches us is that mere servile obedience where you're just sort of coming to the Word to kind of check the box for the day, that mere servile obedience is not acceptable to God, but only those are worthy to be called students of His Word who come to it with a cheerful mind and are so delighted with it that they count nothing more desirable or delicious than to make progress therein. That, that Calvin says delicious because it reminds us of Psalm, 19, uh, Psalm 119 and, and Psalm 19, actually, which we'll sing after, that God's word is sweeter than honey. Uh, Calvin understands Psalm 1-2 to be calling us to delight in God's word and find it with the psalmist of Psalm 19 and the psalmist of Psalm 119, delicious. This is part of the wisdom of, of something like Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question answer one, where it says, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, you recall, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Divines understood that the glory that is given to God in our worship and in our devotion to his word is not separate from our enjoyment of it, but in fact, we glorify him by enjoying those things. We delight in the law of the Lord. That's what this psalm is calling us to do. I should comment on that word law, though, in, in verse 2. If you're looking at the um, ESV, there might be a footnote there that, that says that word is, um, means instruction. The, the Hebrew word is, is Torah. That word simply means instruction, and it is therefore broader than just the, the five books of, of Moses that we often think of when we think of the word law or the word Torah. But at the same time, it makes us think of that. As, as I said, the word Torah, or as you read the word law, uh, many of you, your minds are probably going back to think of, of the five books of Moses. So there is this, this sort of... Um, uh, word play or device where uh, even though the word is, is broader than just the five books of Moses, the very word that is used is, is making our minds run to that, which is interesting because the shaping of the Psalter into five books, remember I just talked about this sort of flow of the Psalms from book one to book five, the, the shaping of the Psalter in five books is, is done so in such a way that it's actually presenting itself to us in the shape of the Torah. 
So that now this introductory psalm, which remember is introducing the whole collection of the psalms to us as it calls us to meditate on the Torah, a part of what it's calling us to do then is to meditate on the rest of these five books, which are God's instruction to us, given to us in the shape of the five books of Moses. There is a Torah shape to the psalm so that this call to delight in the Torah, the law, the instruction of God is actually a call to delight in what Psalm 1 is introducing in the five books of the Psalter. So part of the way that we meditate on the Torah is by reading, praying, and singing the psalms which Psalm 1 are introducing us to. And as we do so, that word for meditate goes beyond just reading, but, but the Hebrew has the idea of, of muttering out loud or even singing, so that what we're being summoned to in Psalm 1 verse 2 is not only to internalize the Psalms in the rest of this book, but then to give verbal expression to them joyfully, even with song. One linguist says this word is often used to express the feelings of the human soul. So it's, it's a deep, internalized reflection that is given verbal expression. What Psalm 1 verse 2 is calling us to is to take the word of God, and especially the Psalms, and internalize them by verbal expression through song and through prayer. It's calling us to do what Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says, and take the word of Christ, which is the Psalms, and let them so dwell in us richly by teaching and admonishing one another through them. This is a call to make use of the Psalms in corporate song. This is a call to make use of the Psalms in in personal prayer and family worship, to meditate on them day and night, making them our own by reading, praying, and singing them thoughtfully and joyfully. The the thoughtful meditation and word-centered nature of this, I think, pushes, pushes against much of modern worship. And yet the delight, the, the emphasis on, on delight and enjoyment in this psalm, I think is a, a corrective to some of us to, to see the psalms that we sing as a joy. To find delight in singing the word of Christ. Which as we do, that this psalm tells us, is one of the means that God uses to make us well-watered trees like Christ, who is the psalm one man. We are made like him as we allow him to lead us in song through the psalms that he inspired and that he sang throughout his life. And part of what verse 3 is is suggesting in that that garden imagery that's reflected there, it says he is like a tree planted by, by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Part of what that verse is doing is it's calling our attention back to Eden that, that place where the, these, these four rivers are, are flowing and, and the trees are, are bearing fruit in season, in every season. Part of what it's doing as it, as it uses that, that uh, biblical theological language that's calling our attention back to Eden, the place where God's presence dwelt, is suggesting that in meditating on the word of Christ, the presence of God that, that was there in Eden is mediated to us so that by doing what verse 2 says, we are communing with God. This psalm is a call to delight in the word of God and especially the psalms that Psalm 1 introduce 
to see how in meditating on them and making them our own, we are fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus who inspired them. Verse 3, are made to bear fruit and to prosper. Prosperity that is spiritual and cross-shaped, but nonetheless real prosperity. This is what Psalm 1 is inviting us to. And in doing this, in in looking to Christ, the, the blessed man by faith, and singing his songs after him, we are equipped to, to follow him in forsaking the world. That's what we see throughout this psalm. And so I just want to make a, a few comments on this last point about following Christ by forsaking the world. This psalm is, is ultimately a call to, to resist the mold that the world wants to squeeze us in. Uh, this psalm, one pastor has called the Old Testament version of, of Romans 12.2 to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that mind renewal that Romans 12.2 speaks of happens through the word. Here, it happens through the psalms, which God uses to help us not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to resist the counsel of, of ungodly friends and ungodly influences, and the spirit of the age. It is in devoting ourselves to the word of God and meditating on it joyfully and thoughtfully day and night that the Lord uh, helps us not to be conformed to the pattern of the world around us, either in the philosophies of this age or the way that we carry ourselves as we debate them. But Meditating on the word of God and the Psalms helps us to be conformed, rather, to the, the, the pattern of Christ, the Psalm 1 man. It helps us to not stand in the path of sinners or, or sit in the seat of mockers, but the Word of God, and especially the Psalms, help us to have our, our feelings and our worldview so shaped that, that we are not the mockers who take on the rage of the world around us, but we're reminded over and over in the Psalms, even this one, of a judgment that is coming. And this reminder that that Psalm 1 and so many of the psalms, the imprecatory psalms, that that so many of them give us of a judgment on the wicked that is coming, that, that reminder that we're given over and over in the psalms allows us to press on in faithfulness and entrust our cause to God and believe that he knows the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly will perish. It is the Psalms that carry us, even when surrounded by an ungodly world who mocks us. It is the Psalms that point us time and again to the the judgment to come. It is they that remind us that God knows the way of the righteous and that give us joy even now, even in the midst of a broken world. All of these themes are introduced to us in Psalm 1, where even for the lonely man who dwells in the city of scorners, in the city of wickedness, singing the songs of Zion is a source of great delight. Psalm teaches us how we can have joy even when surrounded by an ungodly culture. Psalm teaches us how we can have joy even when mocked. By meditating on the word of Christ, which strengthens us, and Ephesians 5.18 fills us with the spirit that we might bear fruit. We do this day and night, reading, singing, 
praying God's word. We do it when we gather together on the Lord's day, shunning the counsel of the wicked, which deforms us, but gathering with the congregation of the righteous, which forms us. And as we gather, we devote ourselves to the reading, singing, and praying of God's word, to singing the word of Christ. So we do as we sing the Psalms, to preaching the word of Christ and holding him up as the blessed man who is the subject of all 66 books in the word of God. And, and by singing of that from the Psalms, we are actually renewing our commitment to him. That's part of what we're doing as we meditate on the five books of the Psalms. In singing them, we are actively committing ourselves to following this God-approved way of life that is described in Psalm 1. By singing them, we are confessing our faith in the blessed man who is the subject of the whole Psalter. We are delighting in his word, and we are doing so in the context of the gathered people of God, so that as we confess our faith together, we are, we are stirring one another up to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. That's what we're doing as we gather together and sing the Psalms, confessing our faith in the King who is introduced in this psalm, confessing that we fall so far short of the standard that this psalm sets, that we are not the Psalm 1 man, but that we seek our life in Christ who is. That we love him and delight in his word, that we desire for that word to so shape and transform us after his image, that we might follow him along with the congregation of the righteous in forsaking the world and finding our delight in God. This psalm teaches us how to follow Christ, the blessed man, in forsaking the way of the world and delighting in God. That's what Pastor put it. The psalms open for us here in Psalm 1 with an invitation to walk on the faithful way that leads to life. And then in, in the psalms that will come after it will show us both how to walk in this way and with whom we walk. We walk in faith with the people of God, those of Psalm 1, verse 5. We walk in hope in the sight of a watching world, the wicked of verse 1. And we walk with our hearts open before the, the, the face of a gracious God. We walk in this way with Jesus himself, for whom these psalms were his heart song. And like him, we read and pray and sing the psalms along the way, trusting that God will use them to conform us the very image of his son. Let us pray.